My guest is James Morrison. James Morrison is a former chief of staff of Cathy Ashton, the high representative for foreign policy in the European Union, and he was also chief of staff of the, the last European commissioner, Julian King. He's currently a senior diplomat in the European Commission and the author of a brand new book, 20 Cars That Define the 20th Century, The Automobile as a Vehicle for History. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks, Paul. Right, so the first things first, this is not maybe an obvious thing to, to write about. So what was the genesis of you writing this book about cars and history? Okay, well, I mean, a lot of people write books about what they've done. Um, but I decided to write books about what I was interested in, which is not to say what I've done wasn't interesting, it was. But I've always had two big interests, I think, in my life. And from a very, very young age, I was always obsessed with cars, whilst other people were obsessed with footballers. I was much more <laughs> interested in the sort of exotica that they were driving. And I always liked history. And both things are very useful if you end up in a career in diplomacy. Cars are interesting, of course, because everybody's got an embassy car and you've got to go around the place. But history is particularly useful because it helps you understand the backstory of things. Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, then you can avoid, you can avoid, you know, repeating the, the mistakes of history. I'm not sure that always holds true, but understanding the origins of a problem can really help you. And lots of problems and lots of issues that are around today and big diplomatic challenges, they have a very long history. And so you need to know that if you're, if you're going to stand any chance of actually influencing events and resolving what are historically very difficult issues. And how did you go about choosing these, these 20 cars? Did they, kind of, did they kind of choose themselves? Have you been thinking about it for a while or did you have to do quite a bit of research to finally make this, that selection of 20 cars? Yeah, I mean, some people say they, they really enjoyed writing a book. I can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I say that... It's something you really have to apply yourself to. So it started a long time ago when I was travelling with, with Cathy Ashton. And uh, I think we were in Vienna one day and I was thinking about the Sarajevo car. And it's in the museum there. And I thought, well, that's quite interesting. It's got a number plate which is 111118. And that just happens to be the date of the armistice. You know, how, mm. how freaky is that? And then I looked into it a bit more. And you find that certainly for the 20th century, which is the age of the automobile, there's usually a car involved in some way in many of the key events of that century. And in some cases, the car actually plays quite an important role in it happening. So I thought, well, this is quite an interesting sort of angle on things. And then I started thinking about some other examples. But ultimately, I decided I would do 20 cars, 20th century, and then I'd try and divide in decades. And obviously, in the first decade of the 20th century, there were relatively few cars around. Right. They were really quite a luxury thing. And by the end of it, everybody's got a car. So there's a selection in that. But then I thought, I'll go for events that either are things that I've been involved in in some way in my work and I've dealt with, uh, which is why at some point we do the Middle East peace process and all that sort of stuff and Camp David. Or, you know, they've always interested me in some sort of way. And so it naturally then 
sort of fell into place that you would end up with 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 a reasonable spread. I also didn't want to use the same manufacturer twice, right? Uh, which is more difficult than it than it than it sounds. And uh, I just you know just things that interested me really. We'll come to some examples, a specific example in a moment. But before we do that. The, the research, there's a huge amount of research in this book. And you, when you read it, you think, well, I'm not going to learn anything new. I know about the start of the First World War. I know about Margaret Thatcher's demise. But yet somehow you managed to... to, to they're not to, linked, by the way. They're not, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, you managed to sort of shoehorn in all sorts of interesting, fascinating detail that I think the average reader would, would find well, they're learning this for the very first time. How, how, how much of a challenge was the research aspect? Yeah, the research aspect is quite a challenge. Well, it took a very long time to write. Because I'd write a chapter. I mean, I took some advice, actually, from, from a friend, from Peter Kellner. And he said, if it's going to be a serious book, it's going to be 3,500 words a chapter and wow. properly researched. And I thought, gosh, that's quite a lot of words. And so I had written some chapters early on and edited them. And then you keep finding new things. Once you write something, you think, mm. And then you find a new angle to it and you rewrite it. And then... After the end of uh, the of Kathy Ashton's mandate, uh, I went into a very busy job, and I didn't really do very much for quite a long time, and then I just did bits in my spare time, and then in lockdown I did quite a lot of it right. actually because I thought the discipline of of doing something of locking yourself into a room for a few days and writing a chapter was quite a good thing. Uh, and Helen Mo, I'd probably agree with that, you know, <laughs> but at least the locking away myself into the room for a few days. And yeah, so you have to, when you do each chapter, you have to sort of plan ahead because you have to buy a, a number of books and then you have to sort of do your sort of web-based research and you just have to think about what's interesting. But the details, they're just things that are out there, but they're not in the conventional history. But they are interesting yeah. when it comes down to it. Well, we'll come to the, the they say, the history uh, bits in a second. On the cards, what strikes me also is that one forgets now that these household brands, are, with, with very few exceptions, were originally, of course, uh, a, a family. They were a name of, you know, whether it's Porsche, Ford, uh, Lamborghini, and so on. Apart from the odd exception like General Motors or something or BMW, uh, one forgets that these were, these were originally, whether maybe a century ago or more, family, uh, family concerns. Yes, no, that's right. And when you, get, when you look at the early chapters, you find that everything is interrelated. Daimler and Mercedes and, you know, Mercedes was basically came about because it was the name of an engine and it was the name of somebody's daughter and... You know, you find the 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 interlinkages are are massive, and Dodge, you know, they provided uh, chassis for Ford, and then Ford and Chrysler are linked, and and so it it is, as I say, it's quite a challenge when you come to, to come up with different manufacturers for each car because it it is all quite sort of interrelated and it and uh, and interlinked. But yes, a lot of things are were they were sort of you know, individual brilliance, uh, sometimes in the face of sort of practical reality. And, you know, a lot of, lot of early manufacturers conglomerated quite early on. But, yeah, I mean, for, for a certain audience, the petrolhead audience, yeah. of which I count myself one, that's, that sort of stuff is interesting because you don't really know it. You know, why, why is Daimler Daimler and how did it become Daimler and why, yeah. why was there a British branch of that? 
and how is that related? And also tracking, you say, one uh, going through the 20th century, the amount of innovation that you track, in effect, maybe in a uh, sort of a, in parallel, the, the amount of innovation that the cars went through uh, over the course of the century, which I think also was interesting. We're going to talk now about some examples. Um, and I'm sure you didn't intend to write a book about death, uh, it's about cars and, and the 20th century. It's not all about death. <laughs> but I wonder if we could talk about all Charlie chapters, but we haven't got time. I'd, I'd like to select three. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the assassination of J.F. Kennedy, and the attempted assassination of, of Charles de Gaulle. So let's, if you want, just quick canter through those three examples, please, and the role of the, the vehicle in, the, in each yeah. story. Yeah, so the Sarajevo car, which is... Uh, a Grafenstiff double Phaeton, which is uh, quite a rare thing. It's very interesting for a number of reasons. Archduke Franz Ferdinand was married to Sophie, and uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Emperor Franz Joseph, was very hung up on protocol, and so they weren't allowed to appear in public together. Mm. Only in the furthest sort of... Uh, reaches of the Austro-Hungarian Empire could they be together. So they like travelling together. By the time of Franz Ferdinand's assassination, the empire was pretty much on its uppers. And so the cars that were for this Sarajevo trip were all borrowed. So they were all sort of members of the nobility who were p part of the trip. So the, the Sarajevo car didn't belong to the Austro-Hungarian government. Everybody thinks, well, they turned up, they were shot, etc. The thing had been planned for, for weeks in advance. The route had been published, mm. which was uh, allowed any would-be assassin to pick the best spots. And actually, Ferdinand and Sophie had arrived the night before and they'd sneaked into Sarajevo for a look around and some, some shopping. And some of the assassins had actually seen them there and <laughs> thought, is this the moment? And they, they hadn't taken it. So then the next morning they arrived by train and it was nice weather. So the decision was taken at the last minute to put the hood down on the car. Ah. And this, as we'll see in other examples, is quite a fateful decision. And why put the hood down? Because you're there to, to see and be seen. There are a number of other things. He's a man of a certain age and uh, he's sort of becoming ever more comfortably upholstered. And so in order to look slightly younger and slimmer, he was stitched into his tunic um, just to make it super this is, tight. These are pre-spandex. <laughs> pre-spandex era. And so when eventually, I mean, read the story, that basically there's an attempt to throw a bomb, it gets deflected off uh, Franz Ferdinand's car, it hits the car behind, the occupants of that hospitalised, they go to visit them in hospital. It's sort of towards the end of the trip uh, when they take a wrong turn yeah. and Gavrilo Prinkip, who's there, happens to be sitting at a cafe thinking... He's the, assa I, he's the assassin. He's obviously. the assassin. Should I take my cyanide capsule now? And then he can't believe his luck. And, of course, it's not clear whether the car has a reverse gear because not all cars had a reverse gear, but it's certainly very difficult to reverse out of this thing. Affords a perfect, perfect shot for it. And because of this stitched-on tunic, Franz Ferdinand is shot in the neck and nobody can sort of stem the flow of bleeding because they can't get his tunic on. Oh, God. So Sophie is shot in the abdomen and dies in his arms, but he dies basically 
for a slimmer look as much as anything else. Right. And so the car is absolutely central to the thing. Um, but equally, the other details, the details matter. Right. Well, as you say in the book, striking parallels with the assassination of J.F. Kennedy in Dallas in November 63. So uh, t take us through yeah, and yeah. the importance of the, the car in that. Yeah, yeah. Incident. You see, well, it's very similar. There, are, there is a great parallel there. So the car had been a presidential limousine, had been, which is a Lincoln Continental, chosen, I think, because it looked sort of European although on a vast scale that, that, you know, European roads couldn't really cope with. And it was new for him, and it came with a range of tops. So it was a convertible, it had a hard top, had a thing called a bubble top, which was formed out of sort of perspex. And, it, of course, it was flown ahead of this trip to Dallas. And again, the weather was nice. So they were going to use the bubble top, which would have been probably made for a much more difficult shot rifle shot mm. uh, because you would have had a distortion in it the last minute they decide they'll go for the convertible you know the route's not a great secret again and kennedy is shot a number of times and there are various conspiracy theories about the whole thing and and and, and movies and that's the case with a lot of these a lot of these events and you know he's killed but what is interesting is you would then think this car, just terrible, you know. Uh, but what happens is it goes, it's sent away to be reupholstered. <laughs> and then the hard top is permanently welded onto it. Right. And it's still in service when Jimmy Carter's president. It is the presidential limousine. And it's now in the Ford Museum. It's the same car. And you think, hmm, I'm not sure how comfortable I would have felt <laughs> being as Lyndon B. Johnson sort of climbing into the car that my that my predecessor had been had been assassinated in and there was no attempt by the forensic people to to take to take take over the car and look for well, a, yeah, look mean, for evidence they or... they did all of that um you know afterwards and then it was reupholstered and i think you know perhaps nowadays if something happened it would either be sort of crushed or disposed of or put in a museum straight away right but it just it's just Revealing of a different time, really. Yeah. Little fun fact I read elsewhere in JFK that because he had this terrible back back problems, you know, it was a bit like Franz Ferdinand being sewn into his tunic. He is wearing some kind of brace Ace, or, yes. or corset to keep for it, as far as the pain of his back, which meant when he was shot, he couldn't kind of bend over, yeah. and that the shot might have missed him, or second shot might have missed him if he had been able to. Exactly. Collapse. Okay. Exactly. Right. Well, but God, goodness me. Well, let's cheer us <laughs> up a bit and talk about a failed assassination, that yes. of Charles de Gaulle, which I also find really interesting because the, the role of the car is really important in that particular incident. Yes, isn't it? yes, which yes. For reasons you will now explain. Yeah. Um, so the Charles, Charles de Gaulle thing is to do with the OAS and to do with Algeria. And uh, uh, it's basically a planned assassination attempt when he is leaving Paris on a, on a, on a Friday and going out through the suburbs of Paris uh, to the airport. And his would-be attackers are all laying in wait as, as the sun begins to set. And they have, a, they have a brilliant system where somebody's posted up the road and he will flash a newspaper and then they'll pull back the door of a van and open up with a machine gun. Unfortunately, it starts to get 
darker quickly and they can't really see the newspaper. So de Gaulle's car, which is a, is a Citroen DS19, and it's one of two, there are two identical ones, is almost upon the attackers before they realise it. They pull the door back, they just spray it with machine gun fire. But because of the genius of the design, I mean, this car is light years ahead of anything else that you could that you could buy in the period. It has this wonderful hydropneumatic suspension. So they blow out uh, the tyres. You can see the side of the car. It's just riddled with bullet marks. But because of the hydropneumatic suspension, it's self-levelling. So the driver can continue driving at the same speed in a straight line. So the car literally saves his life. And there's a bullet that's lodged in one of the one of the pillars on the side of the car as well that, that narrowly misses him. But had he had a conventional car with conventional suspension, it would have skidded off the road at that point and he he would probably have lost his life. So the car is absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial in this. Of course, afterwards, uh, de Gaulle is sort of pretty upset about what happens, uh, as you would be, <laughs> and make sure that the ringleader, Baston Thierry, is, is, uh, is hanged. And that's quite unusual but right. he, at, at the period, but he makes sure that this guy... So no commuting of a sentence. No, <laughs> no, right. no, no. Make sure that, he, that, he's, that he's hanged for what, he, for what he did. Again, there's a whole load of things with the car. The car still exists, but is it the actual car? Or is it the other car made to look like the car? It's been on loan various places. It's in the museum. It's in it's in the uh, in, in the De Gaulle Museum. But it's a fantastic story, which is is very French in a way because it's the brilliance of the French design that that saves the day. Well, you see, going back again, going back to the cars, and not so much the history that. Citroen had this uh, had this reputation of being, as you say, uh, way ahead of the competition for innovation. Uh, why do you think that is? Why do some car makers give themselves that kind of position? That's because maybe there's no guarantee they'd be commercially successful. But somehow, no, no. In, you're saying in the book that Citroen were they wanted to be different. And I I love the little fun fact that Citroen DS and DS en français uh, <laughs> goddess. I asked my French wife last night, she had no idea. She was very interested to, yeah. to learn that. So not a lot of people know that, as Michael Caine would say. <laughs> yeah, no, or that Roland Barthes said, you know, <laughs> this, this was the, the new cathedral, you know, the, the automobile. He was thinking about the, about the Citroen DS, was like uh, the way that people held this car in reverence at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an, what you find across the manufacturers is it's like Michael Porter's value disciplines. Some really go for operational excellence like Ford, so it's any colour you like as long as it's black, although there were about 20 different shades of black as I reveal in the book, so that's not quite true, and in fact the black thing started later on. But uh, Citroën definitely went for, for product innovation. They define themselves by their cutting edge, you know, avant-garde approach to things. They were front-wheel drive. With no guarantee of commercial success, no, necessarily. No, but you could take a bigger risk at the time. And right. that, that, in a way, is part of the sort of French individualism, because when you look at Faisal Vega, because there's um, the car that has another death, unfortunately, that Albert Camus uh, died yes, in, which was his publisher's uh, Faisal Vega, 
you look at that and you look at Faisal and it was a lot of things that were just they were they were very individualistic in the way that they were approached which is very different to a lot of vehicles you know Dodge were very good at this stuff then you've got vehicles that were just developed because necessity meant they had to be developed like the Jeep and the Jeep is a US Army contract it's a very short period it was developed in virtually no time at all the company that developed it Bantam didn't have the capacity to build it so the contract was given to basically Willys and Ford to make this to make this thing a Bantam got a contract to make trailers for it instead even though they were the company that, that, that designed it well we have to leave it there it's a terrific book a fascinating read uh, James Morrison thank you very much for your time yeah, thanks Paul